It's Ben. Everybody, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole. Jim Laskowski is on sabbatical, but with me right now, I think I think you're going to be okay with that because right now we have a very special guest, Brian Tallarico. Now, of course, you know Brian Tallarico from the uh, Park Chan Wook and Alfonso Caron episodes, and of course, you know him from his more importantly from his work. He's the vice president of the Chicago Film Critics Association. He's the writer contributor for RogerEbert.com. And he's uh, the editor-in-chief at About.com PlayStation Games. Uh, Brian Tallarico, welcome. Howdy, howdy. Um, it's great to have you here. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited uh, just to do one-on-one and not have to deal with the technical difficulties of Skype. Though uh, I do want to let our listeners know that I actually recently got fast internet for the first time in years. <laughs> uh, I've been running on like 500k before and that made our Skype quality not so great. But I have a new roommate who knows tech stuff and... She set us up. So, Very cool. so hopefully uh, future episodes uh, in which me and Jim are not in the same room will begin to sound a little more like past episodes where me and Jim were in the same room. Welcome to 2002. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Broadband internet. It's really exciting. I think I'm going to go uh, check out this LolCats that everyone's been talking right. about. Um, but anyway, I uh, brought you here because we want to talk about Miyazaki, uh, who is probably one of the most beloved filmmakers ever. People... Anyone who knows, who cares anything about film, whether they're, you know, just a high school or mildly interested in film or, you know, a diehard film critic like yourself, uh, he, he's, he's beloved throughout, you know, by everybody because he's just, uh, you know, so whimsical and, and magical and unique and singular. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to talk about him, especially since I, re- I had realized only recently that I had not seen many Miyazaki movies. Really? Because there's a lot of movies I thought I'd seen that were Miyazaki movies that weren't Miyazaki movies. Right, 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 right. right. Um, and so I'm watching a lot of his movies. Like, again, there's all the things I was enchanted by, but there's also a lot of stuff that I watched them on around. I was like, oh, wow, this is, I don't know, there's, there's interesting things uh, to talk about with him other than the fact that he makes delightful worlds. Yes, worlds that, I mean, you also want to talk about the most influential filmmakers of the last 30 years. Yeah. He's way high on that list mm-hmm. in terms of, the way he influenced everyone at Pixar and all kinds of independent animation around the world, French animation, his Chomet stuff and stuff like that. I Certainly. Mean, yeah, it's all, he's wildly influential. I mean, it's a crib note way to put it, but calling him the Asian Walt Disney is not far off the map. Right. In terms of influence and importance. Yeah. So, so and that'll be really interesting to talk about. I, uh, the only news I have is that there's a bonus episode, presumably up now. That episode should be uploaded before this one. Um, check it out if you like our parody songs. And if you don't like our parody songs, do not check it out. Because <laughs> it will be a living nightmare. So, uh, but other than that, how about we just get right on to what we watched this week? It's Ben! Well, I was watching Kill Bill just the other day. Followed it. With tremors in the child's play, man, the killer doll. He was something spooky for sure. Switched over to Netflix and I browsed by Q. Watch 
Ichiro Mozu. Oh, I was blown away at how many movies there were. Blue Jasmine was fun, but going from the conversation, come next March, I don't see a nomination. Don't have that kind of muscle. Uh huh. My best American hustle. Uh huh. What we watched this week was it just a punk? The Lebowski, dancer in the dark. Come and talk with me. We'll eat marmalade. Right about that old boy remake. Uh huh. Why is that what Spike Lee makes? Uh huh. So, Brian, uh, we usually start with the guest. Uh, I imagine it's the end of the year. It's award season. You are the vice president of the Film Critics Association. Things have been going nuts. Things have been going nuts. Uh, I imagine you've been seeing a lot uh, lately. On Tuesday, I saw Secret Life of Walter Mitty, American Hustle, and Out of the Furnace back to back to back. On Thursday, even better, two three-hour movies. I saw the new Hobbit film and Wolf of Wall Street back to back, both Jeez. roughly three hours. Jeez, and with like a fifteen-minute break in between. <laughs> wow, what'd you do for that fifteen minutes? I got nachos from the concession stand. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's hard out here for a film critic, right, y'all. Really Lunch of champions, <laughs> exactly. And then I've been uh, watching a lot at home because I'm trying to catch up, and I watched. The new Miyazaki movie last night. Oh, kind of time things in. Yeah, that's actually eligible for us, even though it doesn't come out in most markets until February. It opened in New York and LA, and they sent a screener, so I watched it last night. Sweet. And I watched a lot of stuff at home. What did I? I watched Dallas Buyers Club. Finally catching up. Yeah, things I missed. Um, what else did we watch just the other day? Oh, I watched To the Wonder. Believe it or not, I had missed To the Wonder. Even being a big Malick fan. Can I ask you real quickly about To the Wonder? Yeah. So my dad is, he's studying to be a deacon. He's a very uh, hardcore Catholic. Okay. And one of the, you know, he's, one of the few things, film things that we were able to bond over was, after I saw Tree of Life, I said, Dad, this is a movie I think you'll find very meaningful. Right. Uh, it's an art, like, he's not an art film guy, so I just told him, like, just, just try to meditate on it. Don't try to worry about... religious stuff going on. Yeah, exactly. Work. And, and mo- most of Malick's work oh, all is... All of Malick's work. Um, is to the, does To the Wonder follow that vein? Should I uh, oh, watch yeah. that movie with my maybe, father? Maybe more than any. Yeah. Because there's actually a character who kind of represents religion and religious questioning and the importance of that in life. And it's his most, believe it or not, even with Tree of Life on his resume, To the Wonder might be his least plot-heavy film. It's really? very symbolic. It's very personal. Uh, it's where he grew up. It, it, but not the... If Tree of Life is his youth personal, I mean, and it clearly is, his family personal, this is his second marriage and love falling apart and trying to find yourself personal. Um, and there's large chunks, as in all of his movies, with no dialogue and no plot. And I believe a couple of the characters are... Purely symbols, not uh-huh. even really characters. Yeah, so, even more so than Chastain's character in Tree of Life, for right. example. Even more so than that. And one of them, Javier Bardem's character, plays a priest. Right. So there's religious themes and importance. Excellent. Yeah, uh, I, I think I put it off because so many people I know, even Malik people, were like, "Ah, eh, it's not very good." I'm like, okay, it's not Tree of Life. Fine, but I still think there's a lot of value there and a lot of interesting stuff there. I, I think people. I think uh, it's really easy, um, and I'm certainly guilty of this myself, to fall in. To the trap of, 
Well, for that director, it's not right. a revelation. Uh, and we do that all the time. Yeah. I mean, if a new director directed to The Wonder, it'd be the most acclaimed film of the year. Right, exactly. But, but we hold people up to a standard. And I go back and forth on that. Film doesn't exist in a vacuum. We're going to talk about you. I mean, you guys do a podcast about how directors' films relate right. to one another. So there is some value in that. But I also do think you're right that we're too quick to write off lesser works of Malick, whereas lesser Malick is better than most other films. Yeah, I, I, I think that was definitely the way I viewed it. it was It was sort of like, well, he spent how how right. many decades not making any films at all that uh i, I guess less than one decade <laughs> i forgot about the new world uh <laughs> well but you know the big gap is between heaven and right thin red line yeah. right um but it's like he spent so many years not making any movie at all that uh and then to make two films such rapidly i sort of assumed that to the wonder was something like the afterbirth he's, <laughs> of, got, he's got two more in the can of tree of like, light this yeah is, this is super speed malik time i guess i don't know that's uh, that's that's an exciting that's an exciting thing it's a, and especially uh, when older directors start doing strange you yeah. know start start changing it up. Well, he's you never going to be Woody Allen, but yeah, I, I mean, like having more movies than we. Used well, to. Was, well, certainly. But I was about to say, like you know, Woody Allen. He's my favorite director, but he's also the kind of director that at this point he's not going to surprise me like in that many ways. You know, no. his you know he's he's such an auteur and he's so f- true. You know, so clearly defined what his films are that I, I don't go to uh, to Woody Allen movies to be surprised and to be like, but uh, it I, I happens every once in a while. Every, I mean, every once in a while you're surprised by the quality, but but like, it's I not like... Even thema- well, I guess it has common themes with Crimes and Misdemeanors, but the location change and the themes of Matchpoint surprised a lot of us. I mean, to see him break yeah. out of his comfort zone, yeah. go overseas, draw those kind of performances, which he hadn't at that point. In a that's long that's time a good point. Cause I, but that's uh, a rare one. <laughs> and, and, to, and, to be, and to be honest, that was, what, that was 2005? Uh, I mean, yeah. Or 2004? Somewhere in there, yeah. That was, that was probably right before I actually started paying attention to film, okay. so that kind of sea change did not, uh, did not occur to me. Yeah. You didn't live through the late 80s and 90s right exactly exactly same so, new york stories over and over yeah, again <laughs> yeah yeah as as much as i love small-time crooks and right. i own it on dvd right there right uh <laughs> kind of interchangeable with manhattan murder mystery exactly broadway and everything else exactly there, um except for maybe deconstructing area though though again for a, for a woody allen nerd for me i love small-time crooks because that's his own that's to, to my knowledge this is his only remake which is it's a remake of larceny inc uh, the uh, Edward there... G. Robinson movie, where they they like right. buy a flower shop and they start tunneling underneath it to get to the bank, right. and then the flower shop ends up being really successful. Isn't one of his dramas essentially a remake? Like one of those things where it's got the same structure as? Oh, it's possible. Uh, um, I can't think of which one though. Yeah, I. Yeah, There's be... one of them where it's got the same structure as like a French drama or something like that, but it's not a straight remake, right? Um, uh, and to be fair, Small Time Crooks is not a straight right. remake because right. only the first act is most of Larceny Inc. But Right, but and, uh, um, what, regardless, we're moving on. Yeah, I guess my I guess my point is <laughs> uh, a director late in his career having such a sea change in the way he makes movies. Uh, yeah, is is kind of exciting. So no, I agree, and I should have seen it earlier, but it came out right around the time Ebert died. It was his last review, actually, yeah. and then everyone was like, even my Malik friends didn't like it so much, so I kind of put it off. Right, I was like I don't want to deal with this, knowing I'd see it by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. As for the other stuff I saw, I mean, real quickly, if we wanted, American Hustle is good. Wolf of Wall Street is great. Um, Hobbit is much better than the first one. Take that for what you will. But I, I actually kind of like the first I one. I didn't like the first one at all. So if you kind of like the first one, you're good. Yeah. It actually has a plot. They don't sit around singing elf songs for an hour. Yeah. Um, well, in that case, it might. I might like it less than the first one. Possible. All the things. All the okay. All the things I liked about the first Hobbit was that it's 
not it didn't feel as high fantasy it felt more like like i mean the things i liked about the book the hobbit is it's more about little word puzzles yeah, <laughs> word yeah, play yeah, 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 yeah. and wacky characters and little jokes and stuff it feels more like the phantom it feels as much like the phantom tollbooth as it does the lord book of the rings does, but the, the book. movie moving mountains and those orc fights at the end that's still pretty high no high yeah high no high. i don't I, I didn't think it was very good but it, right. it definitely was i definitely as someone who's not a fan of lord of the rings just because i am not a fan of high fantasy and in mm-hmm. fact that will be something we'll probably end up talking about later with miyazaki okay um in terms of which movies i of his i do respond to and which ones i don't okay. as much uh i actually like i actually was the only person i felt who liked the hobbit more than lord of the rings you are the only person. yeah yeah so so, oh, so then you but, should love the new one, yeah, because um, it is similarly. I would argue care more character driven, okay. than the Lord of the Rings movies, but I don't find the characters as interesting right. as the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, and then yeah, and then we can talk Wind Rises if you want a little bit when we get into Miyazaki, mm-hmm. but it's it's fantastic. I yeah, think it's his. I think it's his best in Spirited Away. Is he? Is he? Do you think he's actually retired? I or do. Is he one of those directors who just says he's retiring. Uh, no, I don't think he. I don't. I think he's cried wolf before. I, I, has, I read um, somewhere that it was like as before Spirited Away. He, did he really? He said he was retired. Well, he, he would have been. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't. I. He's one of those. He has slowed down significantly. Yeah. I've that's sensed, true. And I've sensed less passion in films like Ponyo, for example, mm-hmm. than before. And this one, to me, really feels like a goodbye. Yeah. I mean, the, the plot of the film is. The end, and not to spoil anything, but it really, it I'd actually be a little disappointed if it's not his last movie. Because yeah. it is so very clearly a thanks, this is why I did what I did. Because to me, Wind Rises is about artistry and what we what we create and what we put our passion into that we can't ever really own again. Mm-hmm. Like aircraft that you're designing to go off to war that are going to be destroyed. Films that you're putting your life into that are just going to go out there and be interpreted. A love, there's a love arc in the film that's a doomed love. And it's, so it's got thematic issues with an end point. You know what I mean? Right. And so I, maybe before I saw the movie, I might have said, oh no, he'll come back. But now that I've seen it, I would be surprised. I think it's his last film as a director. I mean, he uh-huh. might co write or produce or do some other things, but this is his last director. Do you mind talking a little bit about Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. Um, it is gloriously excessful excess. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's the longest movie. It, by a minute. Oh, only by one minute? Only by one minute. Uh, and I think it's Casino. We couldn't remember what it was right, the other day. Yeah. It's only by one minute. Um, and if supposedly the first cut was four hours, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I'd love to see someday. It is excess on repeat. It is party after party after coke after whore after drug after crime. To the point of some people thought it didn't have any substance underneath that. And I argue that that is the substance that this is the life these people led over and over again, day after day after mm-hmm. day. And you watch them slowly collapse, but not in any sort of moral messaging way. I've had arguments about Wolf of Wall Street al- already that are akin to the arguments I had about Bling Ring, which is Sofia Coppola's movie, yeah. which I liked quite a bit because it didn't morally critique its characters. And this one doesn't as well. Just as Scorsese didn't really morally critique anyone in Goodfellas right. or Casino. Casino, it is what it is. And Jordan was, as, like De Niro's character in Casino, he was what he was. He was a crazy, drug-addicted, lewds and coke and horrors maniac. And Scorsese represents that as is with technical style like you wouldn't believe. I mean, yeah. it's just... Prieto's cinematography is great. The editing is amazing. You feel none of the three hours. 
the Winter, Terrence Winter, Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire, Terrence Winter wrote mm-hmm. it. And the dialogue is so crisp and so cracking. Well, that's that's the that's the Scorsese magic. That was that that was Departed. That was Goodfellas. Yes. That was Casino. It's these really long movies that felt like ninety minute movies, right? Just because if, of the pace of them. And if you back up from those films, you might say, okay, what is Casino really telling us substance wise? Yeah, I'm not sure, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the substance. I, I said I said to someone, or I wrote to someone, the substance is in the storytelling. Yeah, it's yeah. in how we tell this story. Mm-hmm. It's not in. And, and I, I baffle at critics or audience members who want some sort of like comeuppance for characters like this because I think they don't really know what they're asking for. Right. Like, do you really want to watch that movie? Like, yeah. Do you really want to watch, oh, that's a bad guy who did bad things with those hookers and those drugs? No. And Scorsese's not going to make that movie. Well, I mean, Scorsese, <laughs> Scorsese obviously being a, a student of, you know, the Warner Brothers old gangster movies. That's what all of those movies were. Glorious excess. Here's someone living the life. Yes. And then this message tacked on at right. the end with, and then before the credits roll, a little message that says, you know, organized crime is the scourge right, right, right. of Cause, America. Because the code in the studio made Yeah, exactly. And, but, but they didn't want to add that. Yeah. And, yeah. And Scorsese's not making that movie. You know, no. Scorsese doesn't have to deal with that. So he's not going to deal with that. And, and Terrence Winter's not going to deal with that. Did we judge Tony Soprano? Yeah. Did we judge Nucky Thompson on Boardwalk? Yeah. I mean, it, we got to think about who's making this movie and why they're making it. Now, the argument of I don't want to watch an a-hole for three hours, fine. Don't watch it. It's not a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's coming yeah. out of Christmas, but it's not really. It is a, one of the hardest R's I've ever seen. I really? Mean, it opens with... Is the, it... Because obviously obviously a lot of nudity, language, I mean, but and uh, drugs, but violent? Is there a no, lot of violence no, too? No, but an amazing degree of sex and drugs. Oh, okay. I mean, it opens with DiCaprio doing coke out of a hooker's you-know-what. Yeah. And, uh, and goes from there. And it is <laughs> nonstop in that vein mm-hmm. of uh, they couldn't find two minutes to show on cable type yeah. of situation. Because someone's effed up on drugs or naked pretty much constantly. Some of the... Yeah, I guess that's. I guess I guess the drugs and nudity is a little different because I was kind of like some of the things, some of the ways they find to get movies on cable, though. Well, it's true. <laughs> the the cable cuts of Scarface and Goodfellas well, are ridiculous. It's funny though because there's a couple commercials for Wall Street that are airing in which, let's just say, people have more clothing on on this on the commercial <laughs> than they do in the film, <laughs> and so and so I think maybe they did alternate versions. They do that yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sopranos did that. Sex in the City did that. Like on set, they would shoot another version because they knew someday it would have to play somewhere else. Really, I did not know that about those shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And films do it constantly. Yeah. All I, all I know is the uh, VH1 version of Showgirls where they have weird right. who framed Roger Rabbit car- cartoon lingerie on when <laughs> right, they walk right, around right. naked. Well, the technology's gotten better too. Maybe yeah. they don't need to do two that's shots. True. They just paint on the lingerie. Yeah, it's it's possible. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's very, that's yeah. very exciting. I think Leo's amazing too. Maybe his best performance, mm-hmm. which is saying something. So, um, yeah, I, I, but like I said, it's a movie, even the people I've argued about it with are still three stars on it. Like everyone would admit it's entertaining. Right. If right. you don't think it's entertaining, you're an idiot. Um, to be blunt, I could see not seeing great value in it like I do because of the shallowness. But I, like I said, the shallowness is part of the story. These are shallow people. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it probably will end up being... Because I'm so limited on what I can see in theaters, it'll probably be the one I make a point to see in theaters. You should. Because, uh, again, that... If just to hear the audience right. response. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> some people are going to be offended. Uh-huh. Let me just put it that way. When they have a five-minute conversation about what they can do in a midget tossing competition <laughs> at their office, some people are going to walk out. Right. Yeah. There's a, and in terms of insensitivity, in our very sensitive times... There's a lot of, there's some N-word, F-word. These are not yeah. good people. Right, right. <laughs> so people might be like, why am I watching this? But to me, the value is in the storytelling. Well, that's, I mean, that's sort of, that's 
That's that happened a lot this year. That was that was spring breakers. That was right. right. This is the biggest of those. You know, like that pain and gain is sort of yeah. <laughs> pain and gain was as yeah. much um, as much Michael Bay doing Scorsese as what people say like oh it's his Coen Brothers movie. But, oh, definitely. And American Hustle is David O. Russell openly yeah. doing Scorsese, right? In, in terms that we don't need to get too deep into American Hustle and maybe in a future thing, but I think he's blatantly cribbing from Scorsese thematically because it fits with the plot. Yeah. It's about people. I'm not sure if you've seen the commercials or previews, but it's about people who pretend to be something that they're not. Mm -hmm. And so he's cribbing from Goodfellas and Casino openly saying, here's me doing, paying homage to the masters. I mean, there's a long scene where Bale points out a Rembrandt in a museum. That's a fake and says, who's better Rembrandt or the faker. And Russell is saying, I'm copying Rembrandt. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It fits thematically. So that movie is way Scorsese. I mean, when, we mentioned Miyazaki being influential. Scorsese is probably yeah. the top of the list. Well, certainly. So. <laughs> well, uh, back to your point about uh, movies not um, explicitly and openly moralizing. Uh, I saw – I've been kind of uh, frantically catching up on 2013 movies. Yeah. Because as listeners will know, I don't get out to the theaters very much, uh, both financially and just uh, f- just a failure on my part as a, as a, as a cinephile. Who has time? Um, but um, – uh, but I have been catching up a lot, and I saw two documentaries, both which the things that they didn't say um, really impressed me. Um, one, uh, it's it's a little more subtle, and then and then the other's probably defined by what it doesn't say, which is anything. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the first one I want to talk about is uh, Blackfish, which uh, was a documentary that I sort of uh, got off. Um, you know, I think uh, Amazon has sent on a whim because it was sort of because I looked up a list of most acclaimed documentaries, and uh, honestly, I was a little worried it would become uh, it would be another sort of advocacy uh, documentary about animal abuse, which to to an extent it is. Mm-hmm. It, the bad there, if there are bad guys in this movie, it is SeaWorld, and oh, it yeah. is exposing um, how SeaWorld mistreats its animals, mistreats especially its orcas, mm-hmm. um, and how. Shouldn't really exist. Yeah, and how, yeah, exactly. And how just even there's no good way. There's no good version of SeaWorld. Exactly. It's inherently mistreating their animals to make to make or killer whales perform. Exactly. Um, and it and it does this through sort of telling the story of this of this one killer whale, um, and then several uh, sort of side stories as well of killer whales attacking the phenomenon of uh, killer whales attacking their trainers. But it tells the story of this sort of one killer whale who's abused um, in one sea park in Canada, and then comes to a SeaWorld. I think in Florida, um, and like ten takes buys his time ten years later, and then lashes out and kills another trainer, right? Because of what the groundwork that had been laid, right? And, exactly, and, and then enhanced by conditions, even in a good sea world, like you said, there's no such thing as a good, good sea world, right? So, okay, so what really blew me away about this movie is it is, I mean, it is explicitly trying to get the audience to realize how horrible SeaWorld is and to make the audience not want to go to SeaWorld. Yeah. So that that in itself is that that's a fine goal for a movie. It's not the most interesting thing the movie does. What the most interesting thing the movie does is like most animal abuse is this. Look at these poor animals, look at the look how small the cages are, look at how horrible they're being treated and it just sort of tries to focus on the violence, the abuse visited on them. Right. Um which to someone who you know, which to someone who isn't already convinced of, you know, uh, like someone who already eats meat and someone who already doesn't consider animals uh, equal to humans and everything, that's only going to go so far. But what Blackfish does that's really interesting is it goes into the depth 
of the emotional lives of orcas yeah. in a way that instead of in, – and in a way – okay, so every Animal Planet show you've ever seen, it's like, well, this dog was so loyal it saved its family when there was a fire or this dog was so loyal it t- took care of this other animal while they were sick. And it's all about the acts of kindness that animals do and that right. sort of proving their humanity. But what I found really fascinating about Blackfish was – The it seal was, scene. The the cruelty, the seal on the ice. Yeah, yeah, well, it's yeah, it's not only the seal on the ice, but like the there's footage in Blackfish of oh, yeah. of an orca dragging a trainer under yeah. for basically purposefully right to the point where the the, the trainer almost drowns, letting the trainer yep. back up, torturing, torturing. There is a scene of an orca torturing a human being, <laughs> and purposefully some, somehow to me, maybe I'm like some, maybe I've like a really messed up mind, but somehow to me. That's a more convincing way to say that um, animals have the same kind of weird, complex emotional lives as humans is yeah. that they have the capacity for cruelty as much as uh, kindness. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, I, I'm not sure that's what everyone would take away from the movie. Well, but no, that's but that's, that's definitely what I took away from the movie, especially because the, the other thing that impressed me was they never really say the word prison, but they make a lot of uh, – they make a lot of comparisons – um, and parallels to prison where they're talking about how orcas tend to form gangs based on where they're from right, and right. and language barriers and right. stuff like that and how they'll abuse each other in prison because yeah. of because of pressure from the outside you know like there's a lot of parallels yeah. in between uh, what you know what prison life is like in America and what what it's like to be an orca um, you know in SeaWorld and to lay out those parallels and never say prison instead of just, you know, showing a shot of a sad animal in a zoo and saying, look at those bars. Right. It's just like jail. Like, that's what really impressed me about the movie. Is it's, it's as remarkable for what it doesn't do as for what it does. Absolutely. In, in the sense that the filmmakers, Gabriela Copperthwaite, I think is her name, mm-hmm. very clearly lets the people tell the stories and lets the footage tell yes. the stories. Yes, Instead of an Inconvenient Truth type documentary where we'd see graphs of orchids yeah. and charts and, yeah. and graphics. There's very few graphics. There's a lot of talking head interviews of mm-hmm. people who were there and know about it. And then there's footage, a lot of footage. Yes. The stunning amount of footage. That, that is, that, that is, that is, cause again, and the other thing, um, listeners of this podcast will know that I have very little patience for documentaries that don't feel inherently cinematic to me. Right. Uh, there's a lot of documentary. It's, documentaries are very yeah. hot now. It's, could be a it's TV sort of, special. it's, it's like the indie, it's like the indie version of what, you know, horror movies used to be, where it's like, well, you can put a minimum amount of money investing into a movie right. and you have more likely to get it back because it's going to play in, you know, certain theaters and stuff like that. Right. So there's a lot of just kind of trashy documentaries that are just, here's how an historical event happened and here's a bunch of people talking about it over archival photos stuff right but the footage is so and i couldn't so believe how vital. much of it there was yeah, yeah. Uh, from it's from, not people from telling audiences you what yes and from audiences too of just or from security cameras or from yeah yeah or of like them putting on a show just right. like nothing's going wrong but you see the orcas <laughs> awful, bleeding awful <laughs> things happening in the background yeah like it's remarkable yeah. and yeah, so the footage they get is out is outstanding, which and makes things- it even more amazing that SeaWorld is still open because if they yeah. have that much footage, you know there's things going on that they don't have footage of. In other right. words, this is a tip of the iceberg type documentary in terms of the way these animals are being absolutely treated and taken care of. And but they don't stress that too much either. No, no, no. They which it's, is it's understated, believe it or not. Yes. It's a documentary about shutting down SeaWorld and killer whales that is actually pretty understated. And yeah, and as someone who's just 
Like, I have, you know, it's obviously animal cruelty isn't something that should be ignored, right. but just there is something in my brain that has a knee-jerk reaction to the pitas of the world that's yeah, just yeah. like, oh, fuck you. Sure. Like, <laughs> like no, there, I, I get that. There are people, you know, the, the, the people who are so into saving animals that they forget their humanity, right. which is what I would, how I would classify PETA, and right. which is why this is, this stands above every other sort of animal abuse documentary I've ever seen, which is, um, that I can think. I mean, not that I not that I make a habit of seeing seeing right. a ton, but the Cove is pretty good. Yeah, won a couple of years ago. Can't really think of many others. It's a small genre. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's more it's it's there's more t there's more on TV than there is in right. theaters about that sort of thing. Right, but right, right. I've I've definitely seen tons of specials and and uh, sure and uh, agit prop DVDs and video <laughs> videos uh, about you know cruelty of you know factory farming and stuff like that. Right. But oh, like, like Food Inc. and stuff. Right. Like that. Yeah. But this but. The so even separate from its sort of mission, the the way it got my the way it just had me thinking about animals as far as just here here's what the orca's brain is, and here's their this is the part of the brain that's <laughs> this is the part of the brain that handles emotion and and community and is way bigger than than a human's part yeah. of the brain that's at proportionally. The and, seal scene. This, there's a scene where there's yeah. a seal on an ice floe, and two of them are working together to create a wave to try to push the seal off or the sea lion off. And they realize that the wave isn't going to be big enough with two of them. And you can practically see them call the third one over. Yeah, who's like, okay, we need a third one, and yeah. that wave pushes them off. I was like, they they just work together as a team. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. They, and, <laughs> and there's something mundane about it too. Right, yeah, <laughs> like there there wasn't a lot of starlight. Like, hey, Louie, look, we got right. we got another hand here. It's a little yeah. heavier than we thought. And there's a woman taping it who's like, oh no, the poor sea lion. And you, you, you can hear a guy saying. He says something like, don't watch the bullfight if you don't want to see the bull get killed. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so that was a, that's a, so it's a really great documentary. If, I think it's coming to instant if it's not already an instant. Oh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, it's Magnolia. You mean like Netflix and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, Netflix instant. Yeah. Magnolia uses Netflix a lot. Okay. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be in there if it's not in there now. And CNN owns it and they play it all the time. Right. So check your cable list. Oh, do they? Yeah, they play it for free on cable. That's great. Constantly. At, because I think they do have a sense of I, – I wrote somewhere that if I owned CNN, I'd play it every night until SeaWorld shut down. I mean they're playing <laughs> junk at midnight. Why not right. just put it on? It's a great yeah. movie. You own CNN. Keep it going because to be honest, I hate to get too high and mighty, but it's ridiculous. My kids will never go anywhere near SeaWorld unless right. they have a protest sign because yeah. it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah. that they even exist. Absolutely. Yeah. And, now, no, and that's a feeling I certainly did not have before I watched this yeah. documentary. So on that level, especially, it's successful. Now, there's another documentary you're not as hot on, um, but I might be, I might like even more. Uh, <laughs> now, a lot of people who do. I'm in Blackfish. Minority, so. And it's also um, about the sea. Yeah, it's about uh, – yeah. it's uh, to the extent it's about anything. Exactly. It, is about, <laughs> it is about the sea. It is called Leviathan. And what makes Leviathan special and what makes Leviathan so frustrating to talk about on a podcast yeah. is – uh, entirely the way it is shot and the way it's made um, and not necessarily it's not so it's not easy to summarize but basically it is a camera following the activity the day-to-day and night-to-night activities of a commercial fishing boat um, fetishizing as much as following <laughs> do you think so well the way what, what I mean by that I, I don't mean that necessarily negatively but don't get the impression from that description that it is a slice of life it is yes. very, very much a film it is yeah, a, yeah. 
it, when I say fetishizing, I mean unique camera angles. It's uh, it's it's sound. It's it's Penna Baker gone all the way back right, around into. Right. It is not. You hear <laughs> the everyday life of a fishing boat. You might think yes, absolutely something it is, routine, and it right. is not a routine film. So the way the film is shot is number one the 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 camera footage for the most part is very low grade um, and low level. Low level. You're with the fish in the water yes. as much as anything else. Um, and the lighting is, I imagine. I imagine they just took a dogma approach to the lighting because it's yeah. very it's so it's it's a very murky film. It's very hard to see and yeah. um it's very the way the sounds recorded you there it's kind of clear people are speaking in English but it's very hard to ever make out anything anyone's they're really saying. speaking in English? I, I thought at one point they weren't. I, it's it, I know that's not a priority whatever the, but the, the boat itself <laughs> is off the coast of America right, so right, right, it's right. possible they have crew members who speak Spanish or whatever right, but right. but point is um so it opens with, I believe, like a 10 or 15 minute uninterrupted shot that's attached to, I guess, a uh, sailor's uh, head, uh, it feels like, just based on where the arms are positioned yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And uh, of just the long process of pulling up a net. And <laughs> it is, it's, uh, okay, so I should probably stop trying to summarize it and actually tell you why it's interesting. Because if you summarize it, it sounds like the worst <laughs> film ever made. Um What's fascinating about it to me is having no commentary, having having no narration, no interviews, um, and even no context. <laughs> even giving no context, no. it it's um, it feel it makes everything feel very alien, um, and it changes your the way your the, the perspective you're viewing the action uh, uh, of any given moment from. Yeah, at one point, you know, it, when it starts out, it feels very much just like to the extent. Okay, so when a movie has no characters and no and no and no speaking and no narration and no context, you spend a lot of the movie just sort of letting your mind wander. Mm-hmm. So I spent most of the movie trying to figure out what is this movie trying to say. Okay, what'd you get to? <laughs> I didn't get to anything. Uh, I didn't have to get to anything. But what the movie does is what I is what I why I find it so uh, breathtaking, which is. So the first I was like, okay, so this is a movie about the mundanity of blue-collar work right. and about these loud, crazy, whirring machines and the angry seas and the way it doesn't phase any of these people. They're just doing their job. They're just doing these motions mechanically. As- but once again, very cinematically. Let's not pretend yeah. that this is a slice of life. It right. It's very much a movie. In the no, 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 absolutely. It, the sound it's, it's design an, and the choices. The, the, the word I would use is impressionistic, yeah, which is it's, okay. it's a lot of little smudges that right. – uh, that individually probably mean nothing, and then together you see the you see Monet's uh, right, haystack. Right, 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 right. Um, but um, so uh, so I thought it was about that, and then but then suddenly the perspective switches, so the camera is sliding around on the floor of the boat. Yes, it is and, with the water. I think and that's kind of where I lost it <laughs> with the fish heads. Um, and then and then you see the process of them gutting the fish and cutting off the heads and stuff of these you know still live fish and everything, which is that's fishing. It's not about animal abuse because no. there's no way to there's no there's no grass-fed fish. That's you got to you got to take them out of the water and cut them yeah. off. Like, and I don't think it's necessarily. Some people have said it's about difficulty of this life or this blue-collar life. I'm not sure it's that either. Right. And so for then for a second, I was like, oh, so it's sort of about the weird barbaric nature of Mm-mm. of fishing and about and of collecting meat and everything because it's gore soaked. You see blood squirting everywhere, blood back, washing I come out. Back to fetishizing. A yeah. Bit. Um, and. And the camera's sliding around, so you feel and because and because the camera is your only 
is your only friend in this movie. Right. You, it starts to feel first person. So it starts to feel like you're there sliding around the boat. So I felt like a fish right. on the boat. And then I saw them, you know, and then it, more things happen. And at one point the camera falls off, not accidentally. It's clear they set up some really interesting rigs, especially some of the shots they got are really breathtaking. Yeah, um, it looks great. And it sounds great. The sound work on there and the importance of like the birds cawing and the well, what's, clanging what's, and. It well, and, and what's interesting is it sounds Loud. great, but the tech—it's not technically like no. crisp, well-recorded sound. Like it's right. like the what makes the sound so great is it? It's just you'll hear water slushing over a microphone. Right, exactly. Like and the very clear, like anyone who's ever owned a camera or owned a microphone and has done the thing where they you know drag the microphone across the ground or they drop it or whatever, and that right. just that very mechanical, clear. Like it's making you very aware that you're. Of its recorded sound, that it's. I agree, but but the, the, for some reason, when I think of that movie, I think of sound. Yeah. I think of water. No. I think of birds. I think of. Well, it's a it's a it's a cap- well, it's just it's just an inherently. I don't know if it's inherently, but especially, but it definitely in this movie, it's a fascinating sound of just being underwater. Just and, that that gurgling and that, and perhaps I think of that because it's the only thing to hold on to. <laughs> it really is. Because... And so, like, there's parts where you're you're riding alongside the boat, and seagulls are attacking the camera, yeah. and you feel like a fish. Um, and so again, I, this is a film I'm definitely going to watch again. Cause I could not, if someone asked me, yeah, it's really interesting. Well, maybe what's it about? I would go, you got me. I don't know what it's about, but, but, but you started to get to something. So it's a film that's alien. You so you use the word alien. Yes. So to me, to what end though? You it, don't know the answer to that. I, what I only know is the experience I had watching it was very affecting because it made me in simultaneously, um, taking the perspective of the fish being killed and the fisherman doing the killing. And at a certain point, the camera somehow is up in the sky with the seagulls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it suddenly, it was a film that, that uh, was somehow universal in its, in its point of view where these were all the same. And one of the, one of the most brilliant things about this movie is that the end credits list all of the sailors and then they list all of the species of animals that you have seen. So is it a circle of life thing for you? I, it's something, it's along those lines. It's, we're all in the same, like the terror, like there's parts of this movie I find genuinely scary. Like when you're, oh, yeah. when you're bobbing in and out of the water and the seagulls are diving down at yeah. the camera, like, and the again, clanging chains of the pulley. There's a I, scene where there's like chains. Yeah. Yeah. There's the chains and the, yeah. Just the the gore of cutting yeah. off the stingrays. Uh, oh, it's a terrifying movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I and it's I found it very hypnotic. So, just, do you think it's a filmmaking experiment? I mean, how, to an extent, yes. yes. But it, I mean, it's definitely an experiment in that it's a film unlike I've ever seen before, and it and I think it's a successful experiment in that it uses its sort of I don't want to say revolutionary because I'm trying not to be hyperbolic about things that. I don't. I'm not a huge documentary person, so I'm, I'm sure there's another film somewhere out there like this. But not many. Um, but like the end result of that movie is, I was a fish. I was a bird. I was a fisherman, <laughs> and I saw that whole circle. I saw. I was disgusted by the fishermen, but at the same time, then at a, in a different point in the movie, I was bored with the fishermen. I was at my job at, at Whole Foods doing the same mechanical motion over and over again. Right. And and then I was scared of the seagulls and then I was a seagull and then and and again I'm not trying to be hyperbolic I was I I actually wasn't taking any drugs when I watched this movie I was just gonna ask <laughs> I think it might enhance the overall experience but but it is the kind of film that you definitely have to go with yes to, to, yes. to enjoy. If, 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 if you're first, at arm's length like I was it's not going to work yeah if, if in the first 
uh, I'd say like 20 minutes, it's doing nothing for you at all. Yeah. Just turn it off. It's not You're welcome going to my to be experience. For you. With okay, uh, uh, understood. And, but I understand that if. It, it, like I said, if it's going to work for you, you have to go all in. Yeah. You, you have to say something like, I was a seagull. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it and just, it made, so I guess the extent that I got any meaning out of it, this film, more than any work of art I've ever seen or experienced before in my life, made humans feel like a part of nature. Um, hmm. But also disconnected via technology. They're hmm. simultaneously, it's like paradoxically, because I felt like, at a certain point, I began thinking about humans as this thing that just sort of spawned out of the world that existed the same way coral spawned out of the world, the same way that the same way that so the seagulls circle of life, thing. the same way that seagulls yeah. altered their behaviors that now seagulls know to follow fishing right, right, right. boats and stuff. So, like the fact that the seagulls are following them is a is a recurring you and know, the, the visual POV, motif. The POV equating of all three equalizes yeah. them all. Absolutely. So to the extent that that feeling I got out of. That yeah. movie was something I'd never experienced before. And as someone who I have a lot of barriers in feeling that way, often because um, I'm kind of a, a Woody Allen type when it comes to nature. Sure. At best, uh, nature for me is boring. And at worst, it's kind of overwhelming and terrifying and I hate it. Got so it. like, I don't like going on hikes. I don't like looking at mountain vistas. I don't like right. being in a forest. I like right. being in the city and stuff. So getting me to relate to nature um, in – Alternate ways other than beautiful shots of landscapes and – Other know, than Malik. Other than Malik, which – I mean I love Malik, but I, but but I love, kind I love Malik for different reasons. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, and that's something that actually you know, both Blackfish and Leviathan did in diff- very, very different ways. But sure. that – which is two reasons why I would not be surprised they end up being on my top ten list for the year. Blackfish is in my runner-ups. Leviathan is not, Yeah. But. Yeah. Again, yeah. Again, I would – I would definitely say you might have a Brian Tallarico situation on your right. hands and you just do not get sucked in. But if you I, get sucked in, it's a it's an incredible experience. I mean, I, I run and play with a lot of critics, so a lot of people who look at film differently. But I am definitely in the minority, if that means anything to all of you out yeah. there. Most of my critical friends like the film more than I do. Yeah. Now, the average moviegoer. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot. Oh, man. I was uh, I was actually um, – I was when I was home for Thanksgiving, I, I was – I was like trying to like weigh my options when I could, you know, download off of Amazon and watch and stuff. And I was like, I was like, well, Leviathan, I've heard good things about. And I was trying to figure out what to watch with my mom. Not and that one. looking back, I'm so glad yeah. I watched Leviathan with my mom. She would have checked would have out two out. minutes yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. She would have checked out before there's even a light source. Yeah, there's which even, is a while. Yeah, <laughs> it's like <laughs> three minutes before yeah. you get, you're actually oriented enough to know where you are, even. Yeah, it's true. Um, so, yeah, it's a wild, disorienting, uh, impressionistic kind of movie. But. Those are both on some sort of streaming service. Yeah, for everybody out there, they're really so. They're the ones I talked about. Wolf of Wall Street comes out Christmas. Wind Rises comes out in Chicago at least in February. Uh-huh. And I think oh, and American Hustle comes out in on the twentieth December. Awesome. So uh, yeah, that's what, what we watched this week. Are you ready to sure. start talking about Miyazaki? Yeah, anytime. Lucky ten year olds campuses and castles walking. Miyazaki. Some enchanted world where girls can fly and cats are talking. Hayao Miyazaki. We should tell our listeners that the back of my iPhone case is a picture of Totoro. Yeah, imported. Imported from Japan. <laughs> and I swear to God, the case it came in, I got something in the mail that had like passport stickers on it. I was like, what is this? And I opened it up. I just ordered it on Amazon. I had no idea they were going to Japan to get it for me. Right. That's crazy. So, uh, but yeah, I love it. 
um, I'm a huge Miyazaki fan. A little bit of background just for a second. I even helped program a retrospective of his films at the Siskel Film Center. Oh, I was there. Like, I, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, I don't want to say that's totally because of me, but the Chicago Film Critics Association went into Siskel and met with them and were trying to figure out what kind of retrospective or program to do. Yeah. And I was a part of it was that. A, it, was a really, it was a really great one. The, the Which one did you film see? Film Choice. I saw, I was unfortunately only able to see um, Poppy Hill. Uh, no, that would have been before. That was before? Okay. This was before Poppy Hill is what I mean. Poppy Hill just came out in like February. Oh, okay. There was another retrospective. Oh, they might have re-round it. I mean, it was over the summer. Because this year they did. Oh, then that's not us. Okay. A year and a half ago, we did a thing where a a member of the Critics Association introduced each film and discussed it afterwards. Oh, okay. No, that didn't happen. And we did all the... We didn't do all 11. I think we did nine of the 11. Oh, no. There's 11 now. We did eight of the 10 at that time. Okay. So Um, the thing I went to was not you. No, no, no. So it was a Critics series. Uh, so that's how much I love Miyazaki. Uh, Spirited Away is one of my favorite films. Yeah, it's, it's, outs- it's outstanding. It's um, outstanding. I, real quick, I, th- I think maybe we could both just briefly talk about our experiences with anime. I imagine they're kind of similar, and that we're neither. I might have what- a little more because I worked at a video store, and okay. so I remember like trying to keep up when it kind of blossomed again in the mid '90s when you were probably just a wee babe yeah uh, well that was that was probably when i that when i saw dragon ball z on tv sure. and i was like oh this is the best thing i've ever like, seen ghost in the shell got a theatrical release right and that kind of stuff had it so anime had a brief moment there i remember trying to catch up on some of it um but i have a limited right. anime background same it's there's something about anime that i'm very drawn to so i find myself revisiting a lot of uh different try anime all the time trying to get into it trying to find something that i'd get into uh, because tough. the art style is beautiful, uh-huh. and I love sometimes. this. And sometimes it's repetitive. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, um, it, I mean, obviously, yeah. There's different artists. There's a lot so. of the same themes in a lot. But of um, the art style is beautiful, and I, I think in general the sort of the stillness of the animation is something I find really striking. Yeah, yeah. Um, stillness is something that's almost never tackled in animation. Not in American animation, right? Well, that's yeah. I should say in American animation, that's because you know it's it just. Uh, it, it, it's antithetical to the Walt Disney, uh, Warner Brothers kind of high. Um, Which is why Iron Giant is a masterpiece. Yeah. You get a lot of stillness in Iron Giant. Yeah. The woods and the snow and the town, and, and it's more European than American. I Wars. need to watch Iron Giant. It's been way too long since Such I saw Such a movie. good movie. Yeah. It's one of my favorite movies. So, uh, I mean, basically, I like Cowboy Bebop. Because that's the most western. That's the most western anime. Oh yeah, (laughs) that exists. I've seen that. So like everyone I know who doesn't, who's not into anime, I'm like, what about Cowboy Bebop? They've seen Cowboy Bebop. They're like, oh no, that's good. Yeah, I I think Ghost in the Shell is a little older, but that's the one I remember a lot of people seeing. Oh yeah, well that was a Akira, and I like Ghost in the Shell. I like Akira. I mean, there are certain films I like, but for the most part, I'm not an anime person. So me neither. I struggle to put Miyazaki in context with. Um, the rest of Japanese animation. So I'm, we're probably not going to end up doing that. We shouldn't uh, do that. And, and I said before we started, I think Miyazaki has a, as much in common with international fairy tales like Alice in Wonderland and yeah. Wizard of Oz and with live action Asian cinema. I mean, I see Ozu in Miyazaki, especially his latest one. Oh my one. gosh, yeah. So, so I think he certainly has given a lot to animation and I'm sure he draws on a lot that neither of us understand. But let's not try. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could, there's enough to focus on that we right. don't need to... Um, so yeah, I think I think again, uh, like the last time you were on, it's, we're going to have more sort of a free flowing conversation sure. than focusing on into movies. Though we can yeah. talk about uh, Spirited Away, of course. Spirited Away. And to be honest, I didn't rewatch either of them this yeah. week, but I swear to God, my kids love Totoro. I've seen it maybe thirty times, 
and I've seen Spirited Away a dozen times. So yeah, so I didn't revisit either. I mean, them. Spirited Away, and I, I haven't seen all of them. I haven't seen Porco Rosso. I never. Oh. I didn't see Castle in the Sky. Okay. Um, and I I haven't seen Ponyo, but Spirited mm, Away those would be the three weakest. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I lucked out. <laughs> the ones to see for sure. Is there's anyone new to Miyazaki? You have to see Spirited Away. You have to see Mononoke. You have to see Nausicaa. Nausicaa is an amazing film. And you have to see Totoro. Mm-hmm. And I would argue, if you've got kids, Kiki's Delivery Service is a lot of fun. Kiki's Delivery Service is one of my favorites. It's fun. It's uh, one, of, well, one of the things about... I mean, you say if you've got kids, but one of the things that blew me away about Kiki's Delivery Service is it feels to me like other than the age of the protagonist, it's pretty much exactly like any other movie. Uh, well, not exactly like, because there's things that are remarkable about it, but like... Um, it's like any. Uh, it's like a lot of movies about twenty somethings trying to find themselves. Like uh, it's ba- like to me. Uh, yeah. All of the feelings in Kiki's Delivery Service are the feelings I had when I had to like, get my first apartment, and I'm like Your quarter life crisis. Yeah, or the sort of just like oh, I don't. I didn't know I was supposed to know what I. I didn't know what I didn't know, and like, and um, just kind of get frustrated and trying to find people and find a peer group and and a community and stuff sure. like that. Like that. That's one of the things that's remarkable at Kiki's Delivery Service is honestly I don't know if I'd like it at all if I had seen it when I was 10 I don't think my I, kids have had a tough time taking to it to be honest they like Totoro a lot more well yeah uh, Totoro is so Totoro's much a kid story yeah it's yeah. much more kid story much more fantastical uh, they love that movie but, uh, but yeah you're right I guess I, I take back the kids thing but Kiki's to me is a little less ambitious than Nausicaa or Spirit mm-hmm. or Mononoke no it's definitely I mean certainly less ambitious but honestly I'd say that's one of the things I like about it because one of my chief, uh, I shouldn't even say complaints because often his films work uh, not even in spite of this, but because of it. But um, Miyazaki is a—he's not a—he's not a great storyteller. I wouldn't say like he's a the, world creator. Yeah, he's the way his stories happen are just this thing happens and then this thing happens and then this thing happens and then this thing happens, which and, could be an Asian Japanese type uh, thing in that it's the. A lot of his stories are about the progression of life. They're not forced. Right. You know what I'm saying? So there's exactly. a very zen almost yeah. approach to storytelling. But I I don't know if I'd say he's not a great storyteller because I think the storytelling in Spirited Away – I mean Totoro is a really simple story. But he uses storytelling and world creating for I would argue more complex reasons than maybe saying that's not a great that, that is why I, I sort of uh, qualified it. Yeah. With, I mean um, Totoro is a really simple tale but at the same time it's about – Children dealing with change and losing their mother, potentially losing their mother. Mm-hmm. And like all, I mean, you can say at its core, a lot of fairy tales, which is what Totoro is, are very simple stories because they're designed to get at something more thematic about childhood and fear and right. danger. And, and almost all of his films are about some sort of journey and and the fear that comes with that journey, the fear that comes with change. Mm-hmm. Um, not to get too deep into his entire resume right now, but... Uh, I love, and I'm going to keep going back to this, and I hate to talk about something we haven't all seen, but Wind Rises really grabs all of this uh, for one story, which is one of the reasons I think it's definitely his last film. It's got all of his themes, but yet, but not, but it's not a fantasy, for the record. Anyone right. out there, it's, it's, it's not a fantasy at all. It's a true story. I mean, it's got a lot of dream sequences, because <laughs> that's, that's who Miyazaki is. He likes the fantasy sequences, but it's an actual melodrama. I, should, I, I, I wanted to ask real quick... Um, is there a significant difference in the American voiced versions and the Japanese voiced versions as far as 
uh, changes to script or dialogue or characters or anything? I don't know that for sure. I do know that I've seen a few of them both ways, and I generally prefer to watch the non-dubbed versions. As good a job as they've done with some of the dubbed versions, I saw Spirited Away the first time non-dubbed. They actually released it in theaters both ways, I remember, back in 2002. Yeah. Uh, But since then, like Ponyo and um, Howells, I don't think I've ever seen non-dubbed right uh, which is i probably should correct that in terms of like comparing the two dialogue script wise i doubt it because i'm surprised because it's lassiter and who's really spearheaded this whole dubbing thing the john lassiter from pixar and he's he bows at the altar of Miyazaki. i can't imagine him changing anything sir yeah that's that's why i asked because honestly in total i never got the impression that their mother was dying like but she's away She's and away. For little girls to to be moving to a new place and their mother's in a hospital. Yeah, I mean maybe dying is too strong a word, but that's a that's a sea change. Yeah, that is a major. You don't forget the time you moved to a new place with your dad and your mom was in the hospital, and so you need something in the woods, some sort of guidance. Yeah, some, it, it's about fantasy and a fantasy world. Totoro is a guardian mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and a guardian replacing a guardian who's no longer at home. Well, know? that's. I mean, that's uh, that's the point. Uh, that's sort of the the part of point I was trying to uh, make when I say he's not a great storyteller because it actually works to his benefit that his films aren't overly plotty because they're right. so character driven, right, right, and right, the characters right. are so strong. And that's honestly why I re- I mean that's why I think Kiki is so remarkable because it's to me it's a story of young adults, even though it's a twelve year old. She's a twelve year old witch, and it's not really implied in the world that a twelve year old human has to leave. Right. Has to leave the home. So to me, she, it's sort of just a, the reason she's you know twelve is because she is because when you first leave home when you are twenty or eighteen or whatever, you feel like you're twelve. You feel well, it's and an it's sort of a it's sort of a way to get to those um, feelings. And most movies about twenty somethings, they unfortunately they have to have a plot. They have to be have a you know have to have a plot about a romance, and they have to have a plot about uh, they have to have some kind of high concept you know plot. And that one is just there is a there is a, a burgeoning you know a romance or love story or friendship or you know whatever it could be, um, and uh, again and again that even that ambiguity is really valuable. Not a word often used in the world of animation, Absolutely. especially American animation. Yeah, I mean the fact that we're discussing interpretations of Totoro and Kiki, and, mm-hmm. and we can get to the way he plays with nature and technology in films like Howl's and Mononoke that aren't necessarily inherently part of the plot. But different age groups are going to interpret things differently. You might interpret Kiki differently in 30 years. You might interpret it differently after you have kids, especially if you have girls. Mm -hmm. Like, there are very few... No one's interpreting Despicable Me 2 any differently now than they will 30 years from now. (laughs) Right, right. There are very few people working in animation who create these kind of things. You talk about his storytelling flaws, but it's really just purposeful ambiguity to leave things open for interpretation. I So I, I, thought, I watched a Spirited Away um, yes, last night, film. and uh, I had a, a thought occurred to me. I want to I run this by you. Okay. Is that the first movie about millennials? Dealing with millennials? Because the whole, like, the arc of that movie is she is a very modern girl. Unlike most of the little girls in his movies, she's, wear, she's not wearing, like, a, a dress or a right. skirting. She's wearing the t-shirt. She's right. wearing the shorts. Yeah. And she's sort of you know, being a pill. I mean, it's it, and what what makes it a great movie about, uh, about millennials is mo- unlike most things which are uh, hand wringing, or in I guess in the case of something like 
spring breakers it's hard to determine what exactly right. its take on yeah, yeah. it is the first time anyone in history has compared spirited away to spring breakers yeah exactly well Put but, that on um, the calendar. but but spirit but it seems to both say like hey you do need to grow up and you do need to go ahead and start pulling away but i understand it's hard and it's scary yeah <laughs> like well, okay it feels like a it feels like a, and because of the to- age she is and the time it came out it she is a millennial <laughs> yes she is i guess you're right so that's an interesting claim to make i would argue logically that uh stories of change and okay change is hard but you got to grow up and do it yeah have been happening for hundreds well of certainly years. certainly that's and, then, a... and then it might owe more to alice in wonderland than spring breakers yeah <laughs> but right. uh, but um but I mean, yeah, that's certainly a theme of Spirited Away. The idea being that there's the the eating sequence when they go uh, and, and all the people are eating too much, and there's and the industry of yeah. the of where she ends up. the The idea of this representing the real world it, it, it represents the real world as much as the fantasy world. You think about it; she's got to get a job. There's the woman running. Right. The, yeah, the, the, that that that. It's a fantasy world that also has implications of real world. And it's and the way this fantasy movie with all these crazy demons and this turn up this turn up spirit, like this it captures the way that uh, workplace politics yes. happens is no. incredible. Absolutely. The fact that they're just like weird different they all have different jobs and they the way they interact with each other, it's kind of like there's kind of a little uh bickering and hostility. And right. Like, and, but there's but there's still magic there. And, and they're still... and they're all still clearly like once the stink demon shows up, they're like, Oh, we're all in this boat together still. Right. Like, but it's a lesson learned of you have to deal with this real world. You're going to have to yeah. deal with this real world. But there's also still magic there. There's also still the dragon sequence. There's also still glorious, beautiful things in this real world, young lady, that you're about to enter into. Right. Um, it's, just, it's just, I can't talk enough about that movie. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It's it's really, yeah, that... that it's perfect. It, I can't even think, I can't think of any other film, obviously, you know, animation, but just any other film in general that... That can be so realistic and yet so optimistic, um, and so everything. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I tried to show it to my kids, and they kind of freaked out during the eating scene. <laughs> yeah, because it's terrifying, right? When, when they're when they're getting bigger and they're losing their their parents are changing. My my two year old was not ready for it, and might probably shouldn't have shown that to a two year old. But um, but we still they were they were so it's such, it's, it's such a nice name too. Spirit well, of the way, they what, were a, so, what a pleasant little. They're so into Totoro. I was yeah. like, here, let's try this. And it uh, didn't go well. Yeah. Yeah. I looked over at my son, Miles, and he was like, wide-eyed. <laughs> I was like, okay. Abort. Abort. <laughs> so, uh, but I, but the point is, it has so many emotions in it. I mean, it has optimism and the pessimism of the workplace society. Right. It has opulence and and poverty, almost, with this working class type situation. It's it's just an amazing movie. It has everything in a fairy tale structure that somehow yet feels genuine and real and emotional. It's a fairy tale that touches relatable human emotions mm-hmm. more than just fantasy. You said before you weren't high fantasy when we were talking about yeah. Lord of the Rings. It's a fantasy, right? But it's absolutely. not. <laughs> well, that's. I time. mean, what I. I mean, fan, high fantasy usually ends up being substitution for. It ends up being allegory for politics and sure. war, yeah, and yeah. so it ends up being allegory for World War II. It ends up being well, po- that's the Lord of the Rings, or for the way European nations deal with yeah, each yeah. other, things like that. And those are things that I just don't find as compelling as just simple human stuff, which is why I like more character-driven fantasy. I, I don't. I love fantastical. I'm just as enchanted by Spirited Away as anybody. But you know, like what really hooks me into it is that um, is that human motion, and not just 
human emotion, but the way it bridges adult and child Absolutely. emotions. The cross-generation, cross-demo, The as cliched as this sounds, the, you will get something different out of Spirited Away at 10, 30, and yeah. 50. You will. There's no denying it. You'll get different things out of it. And then let's talk for a minute about the fact that it's freaking gorgeous. That you could that it's it's a beautiful film. Mm-hmm. You could take every other frame off of it and put it on a wall. Yeah. Uh, and like all of his films, I mean, that's what we talked about. World. I use the word world creation. Watching his new one, it's just like there's just some shots. I had a really awful day yesterday. I came home. I put on Wind Rises, and it calmed me. Like <laughs> it did, because there's just some imagery that's just like like really good classical music. Like, like you just, you, you let it wash over you. And, and some people say his movies are slow and fine. Some of his stuff's going to be too slow for some people. But some people can't go to the symphony either. And some people can't hear certain kinds of music that other people find relaxing. Yeah. And I find his work so relaxing. I just find it a world that I can enter and enjoy, like art. Mm-hmm. It's art. And it's, and, and it's, and yeah, it's all this color. It's all about his color choice. It's yeah. all about his vibrant palette. Um, yep. The it's, length of shots, the, yeah. uh, the non-frenetic pace, although he can get in like howls really action-driven mm-hmm. at times. And there's some scenes in Spirited Away right. that are kind of intense. So it's not like everything is languid. Oh, I mean, look at Porco Rosso is essentially an action movie. I need yeah. to see that one. But uh, I mean, Castle Cagliostro is yeah. one of my favorite Miyazaki movies. And that's and the reason it's one of my favorite Miyazaki movies because it's one of the best uh, action-adventure movies yeah. I've ever seen. Like, yeah. it's. It's it's nonstop set pieces and yep. action stuff, but um, he certainly does that. To talk about that, know. talk about that movie a little bit. That movie is an anomaly in that it's um, it was his entry in a pre-existing franchise that right. he worked on, but that he was not the main creative force of that right. film. Right. So it's it's not a Miyazaki movie in the way you think of a Miyazaki movie, but it is but thumbprints on it. It's incredibly directed and yeah. um, and it's it is. It is an action movie that understands how to make action exciting in the animated form, which is not right. animate a bunch of guns fire. Because the in the in the sort of um, lowbrow way that seeing machine guns fire is exciting in real life, it's because you understand there's just explosions happening right there right. and they're loud and they're which is not really the case. In so a lot of action anime, it ends up being very dull and tedious because it tries to ape action films right um whereas he or video games yeah yeah or video especially i mean well they feed into each other right um but but uh but in uh, castle caliastro he's a he exact he understands that one of the great things about animation is you can exaggerate things and so things can look more perilous and he can and the way that you can make oh my god indiana jones jumped and he just caught onto the end of that ledge and he pulled himself up he can, you can stretch that out you can make that even more see more perilous and more dangerous um, once again to get back to brad bird iron giant and incredibles yeah. do exactly the same yeah. thing incredibles is a great action movie yeah oh, it's no one talks about how great an action movie that movie is right that's um and so there's a lot in castel caliestro which is uh it's and he and he, the balance of this is fantastical and this is whimsical and it has a great sense of humor, but we're not going to make it so you don't believe the world and then you don't believe the danger. Like he's, he's always yeah. just on the skin of his teeth the whole time and it's really genuinely exciting and, and funny. And Yeah, I mean Mononoke's got a lot of that, a, a yeah. sense of danger, a sense of urgency mm-hmm. almost. I, he might have lost that a little bit in Ponyo and maybe Wind Rises. Wind Rises is very... His most lyrical film. Right. I mean, it's a very slowly paced, although it's got some sequences that are intense, but 
I guess of all those, Ponyo definitely is also his most kiddie film. I'm not, you said you hadn't seen that one. Uh, no. And so it's, it's, and it's honestly, it's been a very long time since I saw Princess Mononoke. I didn't get a chance to rewatch that. For it's this. been a long time since I saw Castle. Yeah. Like maybe 20 years. So I haven't seen that one in forever. That it's, I, I would definitely recommend. I have them all. I'll go try yeah. and grab it. <laughs> grab it out of the library. Uh, yeah. Cause years ago, Disney released them all on DVD and I was doing what I do. So I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll review those. Send them over. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I think I lost my train of thought. Yeah. But the point is, what we're getting at is he can do anything. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about the fantasy worlds that also have definitions, like it's a real action movie type thing. There, there's there's a, such a confidence in Miyazaki's filmmaking oh that you go, you go along with whatever it is. Yes. Like he's like, okay, here's the image. Here's what this creature is going to look like. Here's what this is going to look like. And you can – you don't – if you're questioning why he made that decision, you're not enjoying the film and you're not with it. You just have to go with it. Uh, and, and, and in Wind Rises, it opens with a shot of a bomber. It's a dream sequence. And the bombs come down from the plane and then they start to move like they're anthropomorphic, uh-huh. like like animals of some sort. And it's just – in so many other filmmakers, A, would never try something crazy like that and B, wouldn't pull it off if they did. <laughs> it would look silly and right. stupid. But you know immediately – Okay, I'm in the hands of a masterful filmmaker. I'm well, in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. And even a even a film I'm not a big fan of is a great example of that. Like Howl's Moving Castle, I really am not a fan of. It's at all. I, I, um, no, there's not at all. Visuals. None of his films I don't like at all. Well, there's like, some visuals in Howl's that are good. no, absolutely. There's none of his films that I I find like oh, I'm mad I watched that. I'm thumbs up on all of them to be blunt. Yeah, I, I mean some more than others for sure. Uh, so Howl's is lesser. To I be agree. honest, Howl's I find kind of incoherent. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you haven't seen Ponyo. But, <laughs> Ponyo is way incoherent. But, uh, but to the, to the extent that it took me, um, and I, um, it's, I mean, like a lot of his movies, they're about two hours long. Yeah. Um, and to the extent that it was about an hour in when it lost me, and then I looked back and I'm like, uh, it didn't lose me. Like, I hated the rest of it, but it lost me as far as like, I have, I can't stay invested in the story because sure. I'm so lost. I get that. It's not someone I argue with people. Yeah. I, know, I have a good yeah. friend who hated Ponyo. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? If you don't go with the fantasy, you don't go with the fantasy. I can't convince right. you. But I, when I looked back at the previous hour, because I, I was trying to, in my head, I was trying to figure out, okay, what, what point was that he lost me? I realized that he didn't explain anything at all ever in how, like, no. how's the movie Castle? He's like, there's a war going on. Well, what's the war? Yeah, don't, not important. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that, so that, so, so there are a bunch of kings who are getting wizards. What, wait, what are they getting the wizards for? Not important. Don't worry. Right, about right. It. Like, that's true in all his movies. I mean, it is what it is. He's, it's what Wait, he's why does she you. want his heart? Don't worry yeah, about exactly. it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, so, and that, did get to me at a certain point sure. where I just like, well, I'm not going to worry about anything. I don't care. I'm just going. Yeah, I'm just going to wait that. for this to end. But, um, but the the extent that he is able that he was confident enough to do that, yeah. and that I was able to follow him that long, even though like the way that movie progresses again, it's just wait, how do we get here? Right, right. <laughs> like, what's going? On? Like, sh- no one said the words cleaning lady, but she decided she had to be his cleaning lady. Like. <laughs> There's a lot in that movie that is so confusing, but to, but I bought into it for a full hour before it finally overwhelmed me, and that's just that's all pure confidence. If it was any less confident, yeah. I would have instantly checked out. I I wonder. I wish I knew more about the process of the way Miyazaki makes movies because my wife asked me last night. We were watching Wind Rises. I was pointing out how much of his hand drawn, which is almost all of it, and she was mm-hmm. like, "Well, does he draw it?" I was like, "No, probably not. He oversees a lot of it." Mm-hmm. I mean, the way animation houses work there's a lot of people working on a project at one time but i tell you if i saw poppy hill or arietti 
and then I would I know immediately they're not Miyazaki films. You can you, tell you, not from the credits, but just from just from watching them. Really? So there is a vis- there's some sort of visual confidence or something that he either imparts to his animation mm-hmm. staff or it's in his storytelling. But well, he- that might be something to talk about for uh, briefly, which is um, and this is something I kind of wanted to ask you because I was thinking about it and I was talking uh, with my partner Regina about it and I was like, you know, I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it is an animation director does. They're not on set saying action. So what it, do you it's know a, what the job is, what the day-to-day sort of uh, – what an animation director does? I believe it's more of an overseeing type. What does a director of – I mean the director of a play gets every piece in order and right. then lets it loose. Yeah. So you work with your staff and you get every piece in order and he probably approves Every yeah. frame and every shot, but he's not there hand drawing every frame and every shot. So it's more of an overseeing, like a theatrical director, right? Oh, that's that's a, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, but um, but I, it's weird to me, and I'm not, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I could tell that Poppy Hill and Arietti weren't directed by Miyazaki. Yeah, like they, they it's you, in the same way that Bird's films, that his two animated films have a certain personality. You can kind of tell um, Stanton's. Stanton's Pixar films have their own personality. It's something that the director of an animated film brings to the work, even if it's in the same house or the same studio, that is different. Um, and that's not a slight on Poppy Hill and Ariadne, two films I actually like. I don't love, but I like. Uh-huh. Um, not as much as any Miyazaki films, I don't think. But they're still okay. Uh, I do wonder now, if we want to get there, who who the mantle gets passed to in terms of the importance of international animation i mean when he when he say he's retired is he only retired from directing or is he not going to oversee because a lot of the films like i mean the two films you mentioned he helped write he did um even if he didn't direct although one wonders how much that could be an executive producer type credit like yeah that's true i'm not sure culturally maybe he helped write them just in the sense that he was in a meeting once and and when you the master's in a meeting once or or in the fact that look this is studio ghibli so the way we work is it's an HMD. Uh, <laughs> like. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that that overall that oversight thing could be how he wrote those. Um, I don't know. I mean, in terms of international animation, I like Chomet's stuff a lot. The Illusionist and Triplets of Belleville. Mm-hmm. I think that's important stuff. But there's no one really. I mean, if you ask who the most important animator in the world is for the last twenty, maybe thirty years, it would be Miyazaki. Right. Every single time. Mm-hmm. So I hope someone takes that mantle, or at the very least, I I hope. Film, the films keep getting made that are that are that someone understands the Miyazaki spirit is not just fantastical, right. often sort of steampunky kind of yes. uh, you know Ursula K. Le Guin inspired worlds, and that right. it's the structure of the films themselves. Because I mean, you know, we're talking about the the way Spirited Away talks to both kids and adults at the same time, and the right. way it talks to kids and adults at the same time is to be about things. About the transition from kids to adults, right. and to and to speak clearly enough that both parties understand both parts. Whereas the way that modern animated films talk to kids and adults at the same time is they do a dumb kids movie and then they put celebrities who do jokes or over pop it. culture references, right? Make yeah, an like, American Idol joke and the parents will laugh. That kind of nonsense. exactly, and that. That's my concern. My concern is that if Miyazaki goes away, all American animation will be the Crudes, and all international animation will be anime ghost in the shell yeah ripoffs I, I if you haven't seen the illusionist i adore the illusionist so that kind of stuff i want to see more of and i want and i hope hand-drawn doesn't go away yeah i don't want everything to look like despicable me too i want hand-drawn animation to still be a part of the form and there are some people doing it there was a french film called the painting this year that i really liked that had a lot of 
hand-drawn stuff in it. But I just I worry that if we lose our figurehead of this kind of <laughs> critically acclaimed especially with the way Pixar has gone lately, who's yeah. gonna who's gonna lead the way is what I'm saying. Yeah, there's gonna be I'm a, a little power vacuum. There is a power vacuum. <laughs> so so somebody better Brad Bird better come back to animation. You know what it's gonna be. Uh, Ralph Bakshi is going to oh, go, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared for my return. Cool World 2. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, return of 70s counterculture. Right, exactly. Here we go. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I actually, okay, so I lied. This is not the first animation director we've covered. You did Bakshi? I, yeah, we did Bakshi. I don't know uh, why I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. he, well, he's cool certainly not, a, he's not nearly as good as <laughs> no. me, but he's probably the only other person who is as accomplished uh, an auteur. <laughs> like uh, as singular yeah. and auteur because we talked about doing Bird but he's only got two movies right, right. So the, Aco- accomplished not to... being accomplished great works but as in accomplished being an auteur and being right. a singular voice his fingerprints are all over his movies yes, yes. Uh, for better or worse exactly um, I think he just does like political paintings now. He, I thought he had like some sort of thing. He was trying like a Kickstarter. Type yeah, thing. I don't think uh, Last Days of Coney Island took. Oh right, yeah, that yeah, was yeah, the thing. Yeah, yeah. That was the long boiling uh, right. script, gestating script that right. he kickstarted, and I don't that. think it ended up uh, getting kickstarted. So too bad. What did you guys talk about? Uh, we talked about American Pop, okay. um, which I think is a really. Really fascinating movie yeah, structurally, yeah. even though it has the rough boxy problem of all of its characters are assholes, right, so right, it's hard right, to right. care about any of them. Right. And uh, we talked about um, Lord of the Rings, which is <laughs> which is horrific. Yes. So we ended up also splitting a lot of time with uh, Fire and Ice and Coonskin and um, what's, the, what's the one with the Fritz like the Cat, Shana Na guys? Um, what's that one called? I'll look it up later. There's one that's just awful. There are a few of them that are just hey, awful. good looking. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't stand that movie. Yeah, uh, there's there's quite a few of them that are just awful. But um, <laughs> but uh, except um, for Cool World, wildly oh, underrated. No, oh, cool. Well, the thing the thing that it the thing that Ralph Bakshi needed was to be a live action director. Right, exactly. There was actually a Showtime. There's like a cool series World of is fascinating. There's like a series of, in the '90s. The Showtime did a series of TV movies um, that they got notable directors um, and up and coming directors to oh, yeah. do. Like pulpy, yeah, kind of. I that was that. Catherine Bigelow's first film. Was I think Dante did one? That there. I think Joe Dante did one. Yeah, and Ralph Bakshi did one. In it. Did he? So it was, he has one film that's all live action. <gasps> Is it horrendous? It's horrendous. <laughs> I kind of want to see that. Yeah, it's. No, it's I like worse train scene. wreck movies because he's sort of like he's sort of like like uh, as someone who's not a fan of Brian De Palma, he's oh. someone who oh. if someone says if someone says yeah. <laughs> He's, he's, if someone says, well, Brian De Palma's a hack, anyone can just do something that crazy. It looks like someone who's really bad at directing trying to be Brian De Palma as far as all wait, the crazy wait, formalism and stuff. Who and, would say anything as crazy as Brian De Palma's a hack? Well, that, well I'm, I don't, I think a lot of, I think a, lo, a lot of the enjoyment you have to get out of Brian De Palma movies is you have to ignore the fact that his movies are the dumbest things you've ever seen in your life. Like almost all of his movies are the dumbest oh, things. Boy, I've we ever don't need seen to get in into this. We you, should do De Palma some you, other time. You, don't, you may not know this. We did a De Palma episode. Oh, with Peter. With Peter. I've heard, I've heard legendary. <laughs> I've heard tell of the De Palma yeah, episode. Yeah, and it was and it was the that. greatest nerd schoolyard oh, fight. Because Peter is the biggest De Palma whore yeah. in the world. And Matt, and Matt Gamble is, uh, when he doesn't like something, he's the most dismissive person in the world. So he's like, uh, I guess he's kind of garbage. <laughs> it's pretty great. Well, I do make fun of Black Dahlia every time I'm around Peter, mm-hmm. just to make him angry. Yeah, But, um, but the old De Palma. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's, there was certainly a blood, great era. blood and dress to kill till I die. Um, Miyazaki is a great film. <laughs> yes, let's go back. <laughs> so, like, so the Miyazaki films I find myself not responding to are the ones that 
are more uh, sci-fi fantasy epic. The Howl's Moving Castle, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Oh, I love Nausicaa. There's a lot. There's a lot to like. Visually, in I love. Yeah, Nausicaa is one of those. As I was talking about, let the visuals watch over, wash over you. Realize when it came out. And that movie's yeah. thirty years old. That's it. Does not look uh, old at and, all. And, and maybe part of the reason it, it doesn't get grouped in with these with these films is because it's a little too good to be one of these films. But it is the best post Star Wars movie in that era of yeah. Like it's an adventure. Yeah, it's but it feels yeah, but it feels. Uh, it feels like he interpreted Star Wars, uh, you know, and sort of that whole feeling. Well, but then, Star Wars was interpreting all kinds of shit too. Well, no, no, I exactly. Mean, no, I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying Nausicaa's ripoff of Star Wars. Right. I'm just saying it feels very much yes. like a post Star Wars movie. And okay. every other post Star Wars movie was Battle Beyond the Stars, right. and was just like Last Starfighter. Yeah, and was well that yeah that uh, a lot of it was just kind of junky garbage sure. that didn't get the point of Star Wars that was we're characters. now lumping Nausicaa in with. Yeah, apparently. right, exactly. And that's what I'm saying. I'll Maybe that's the reason you. it never gets lumped in with that with <laughs> right. Turkish Star Wars. Because <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I love Nausicaa. And Nausicaa's my, I would say my third after Spirit Away and Totoro. You know what, I, you know what else um, I really respond to uh, thematically in his films? Uh, he's such a strong pacifist. Oh, very and much. And so. as, as a pacifist uh, myself, I it's, it's Nausicaa being a movie... Uh, when I, I read the IMDb description, and it describes Nausicaa as a warrior pacifist, and I'm like, yeah, maybe you should have copyrighted that, because that's an oxymoron. And then I saw the movie, I'm like, no, she's a warrior pacifist. That's- and, and that's one of the reasons Wind Rises has aggravated so many people, especially in Japan, because yeah. it's about the guy who designed the planes that were used in World War II mm-hmm. Japan. Uh, and it doesn't, not to spoil anything, it doesn't really come down on him too hard for doing that, or no. morally. No. It's so not, it's, it's, so it's, it's not what you would expect. It's, it's not, not, a, it's not about the expect. tremendous guilt he feels no. from making I mean, these if it is, that's If it is, that's incredibly subtext. It's about... I, the fact that the, the, those planes were used for horrible things doesn't mean their design wasn't a flight of fancy and something really creative and really... It's about a guy who dreams of creating planes and creates these great planes. What they were used for later is subtext, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. Yeah. Because it could have been a, oh my God, my beautiful That's creation. what I figured it would be. It's not. That's that that makes me more interested. Yes, <laughs> because it, that because I not I that film. I because I doubted Miyazaki, um, like Thomas. I doubted yeah, <laughs> I, I doubted not. our animation savior, and uh, I, I thought he that that was more he was doing a more typical anti-war kind of a no. Film. I mean, it's there. There are images of war, and there's some very dark stuff in there, but it's more of a. I wouldn't want to say after. It's subtext. It's mm-hmm. not the main story. The main story is about a man who's passionate in the moment. And what that stuff is for later is up to you. And that's why I think it's a final note as a film. And Miyazaki is the plane designer. And what you want to use this for and what you want to interpret this for, good or evil, is up to you. That's that's really great. That's, yeah. I'm excited to see that. Um, yeah, Totoro was a hard film for me. Because it so, it's so... So there are parts of his films that feel languid in the way that some live action independent cinema feels languid, which is it's about characters. It's about the feeling. It's about the mood. So we're not going to worry about getting you from point A to point B to point C in the plot. But parts of Totoro felt languid in the way that like brother bear, (laughs) the the Nick jr. Show feels like where I'm like, or I'm like, I do not have. I no longer have the attention span for this. Where like really? when I'm in the laundromat and they're playing children's programming, sure. I, I'm often like, I can't imagine. I can't imagine young people having the attention span to sitting through this because they're so uneventful. And Totoro is so slow. But the world creation is so strong. Yes. I mean, my, I got a four and a two year old boy who have attention spans of modern children. Yeah, they are. Uh, 
adore that yeah. movie. And 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 to be honest, it seems to calm them like his movies calm me. There's just a and whether it's the the strength of the the child characters, the design of Totoro, the world's creation, the score for that movie, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. There's just a mesmerizing quality that you don't have to rush to get anywhere. I mean, if I was going to start naming just individual favorite sequences out of any Miyazaki movies, I think my number one would be that tree growing in the backyard mm-hmm. um, in their dream when they uh, when they see the when they after they've planted the acorns because it's there's something about that way that tree sprawling out of itself yeah, was animated. Yeah. That was, it was so captivating because it was at once utterly gorgeous and it was a little horrifying almost. Oh, yeah. Like, it it reminded me of, like, of, like, parts of Videodrome when things are just growing out of. (laughs) And once again, the only person who compared me is actually Videodrome. (laughs) uh, But I love it. Uh, I mean, there's the sequence in Spirited Away when all the ghosts come on the boats. Yeah. Which is gorgeous and terrifying at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. The boats are beautiful. The design of the black ghosts are beautiful and yet it's also that's where my son checked out entirely yeah because it's so yeah he's an amazing artist in the way he can craft images that have multiple that create multiple feelings and multiple emotions and and not necessarily in pursuit of a story like it's not all modern animation especially modern american animation you don't see any images that are part of why Gru is doing whatever he's doing in Despicable Me. Every image is plot-driven. Right. Miyazaki can have an image that's purely mood-driven. And, and and I think it's because animation's so expensive that you so rarely see artists like this yeah. emerge. And when you do see artists like this emerge that have such personal vision, they tend to be on the much smaller scale. They tend to be doing everything like the George Plimptons of the world. Or, right. Which, uh, who, who's the animator who did Everything is Going to Be Okay? Um, who does the stick figures? Rejected. Yeah, yeah, Don yeah. Hirschfeld. Yeah, like the Don Hirschfelds of the world. Right. Who their re- animation's much rougher, and the you know they don't have the budget to create the beautiful worlds that Miyazaki does. And maybe they don't even have the inclination to create the beautiful worlds that Miyazaki does. Well, but that's like, the great thing that Miyazaki makes a fortune in every country other than ours. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when it came out, Mononoke Noke was the highest grossing film in Japanese history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people go to see these films in in every country other mm-hmm. than ours. To be honest, not just Japan. You look at the gross. Wind Rises has already made over hundred million dollars. It'll be lucky to make five million here. Wow! So to give you some comparison of how the rest of the world sees these films compared to us, uh, we are sadly a culture that doesn't appreciate this kind of stuff, especially if it's not dubbed. Mm-hmm. I- I'm not sure what version they're releasing. But the version I saw for Wind Rises was subtitled, so we'll see what comes out in February. Yeah, well, yeah. I definitely try to see the subtitle when I can, but uh, several of these films I did see the um, American dub version, which, to be fair. They get real actors, which is they do. a good thing. They do. But Spirit, then, the spirited dub is great. Yeah, but then sometimes the uh, spirited dub is great because there's no notable voices. But then, like in Howl's, you have like wacky Billy Crystal fire, and yeah, it's yeah, yeah. and it's like yeah. he, Billy Crystal. To be fair to Billy Crystal, he's not doing a bad job, right. but I can't get. No, I, I know. Like it's the one part that just feels like uh, the genie in Aladdin to me, and I don't mm. want any part of a Miyazaki movie to feel like genie in Aladdin. No, I agree with that. I agree with that entirely. Um, when Spirited Away opens with Michael Chiklis as the dad, I always have a shield flashback. <laughs> but, That's, but that, that was the voice. I was trying to figure it out. It's Michael Chiklis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but then man. that usually goes away. Um, but I, yeah. just, I just had to drop my coffee Kaiser Sose moment or every scene with him. I was like, who is that? Right. Who is that? Right. Chiklis. I think Spirited Away did like 20 here, which was stunning for that kind of movie because it won the Oscar. Yeah. But it did like 400 internationally. Mm-hmm. It's, it's insanely high on the list of... Um, yeah, when did wait? When did Crouching Tiger come out? 
2000. 2000. Because Crouching Tiger, I think you, when you talked about Spirit Away being released dubbed and subtitled, I think Crouching Tiger did the same thing in theaters. Did they really? Um, I didn't see it dubbed. Maybe I, they did. Well, you know what? I think that's Weinstein, and that makes sound like something he would do. Yeah. Re-release it dubbed. Surprised he hasn't done that for Grandmaster. It's, it's possible. It's it's possible they were part of the same whatever wave of oh, yeah. American public interest. Oh yeah. Uh, well, Hero and Flying Daggers. There was a certain yeah. Asian interest right there in the early aughts or whatever mm-hmm. we're called. Probably, probably inspired it in no small part by the Wachowskis and the Matrix. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and all their all their Hong Kong influences. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so man, uh, I'm trying to trying to think if there's any movies that I saw that I, that we haven't talked about. Have you seen any of his television work? No, and I wish I had. Um, I noticed on IMDb he did some Sherlock Holmes series. Sherlock Hound. I, I imagine it's a little that. dog. I gotta see yeah. that. Yeah. I gotta find a way to see that. <laughs> so no, uh, I mean, I have I have three kids and nine jobs. But right. One, one of these days when I have time to <laughs> to go back and find... Uh, find when I'm Sherlock when, Hound. When there is an option for... I mean, I'm very lucky that what I do allows my entertainment to meld with my job. I, uh, but yeah, when there certainly. is a time for pure entertainment, I will go find Sherlock mm-hmm. Hound. So awesome! Oh, uh, do you have any other p- uh, parting words for about uh, Miyazaki? And no, uh, watch all eleven. Even my least favorite of the eleven is valuable, um, and I guess that would be Ponyo, probably. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they they all have some. No, Castle in the Sky, maybe. Anyway, um, they all have something to see, to say, something to appreciate. And they all are a good tonic for what's happened to American animation, which is just increasingly Certainly. depressing. For, yeah, for a second there. Well, what I find interesting is that I, the Pixar uh, Ghibli connection yeah. is usually made in so strong in people's minds, but the films they make are so wildly different. Like Pixar's – when Pixar, I would define them as great storytellers. Like they, yes. they create – you know the way that they lay out a story and plot and the way that – but Miyazaki's love and appreciation of nature, I think, is a tenet of Pixar, especially early in Bugs and Nemo yeah. and that kind of stuff. So I think that stuff plays the world creation of Nemo. Uh, well, Nemo's certainly early Pixar was much more about world creation. Oh, right, than it is know, now. The it's Toy Story with blank right. sort of formula with bugs, with monsters, with right. Yeah, well, but maybe those. That's why I'm drawn to those. Films. Oh yeah. I mean Nemo. I think even Wally, while nothing like what. Miyazaki has made is something he would appreciate. Oh, certainly the uh, the attention to detail in it. The, um, the what I love so environmental much about Wally, message. The environmental message, definitely, but also the moments like we talked about that aren't necessarily driven towards the plot. The mm-hmm. stuff with Wally and Eve, the musical at the the funny girl stuff. The that we that's the problem, and I hadn't really thought about it till this podcast with American animation. There's no time to do anything that isn't plot driven. Yeah. it's all got to be. How do we put? Unless it's a de- Unless it's a gross out humor or a dumb joke, but there's no moment of retros- of introspection like there is in every Miyazaki film, uh, and Wally's got that in Spades, mm-hmm. and, and Nemo's got that. Well, I mean that's why I tend to cherish the smaller scale films like Kiki's Delivery Service all the more is because I mean there's no American animation at all that's going to have the quiet moment where she just decides to help that old lady yep. clean and I like agree. there's no like. And, I mean, Even this the, is not a Miyazaki film, but uh, one of my favorite Studio Ghibli movies is Whisper of the Heart. Yeah. And that, to me, is yeah, that's a unique such movie. a small-scale movie. Like, yeah. There are no movies about the weird, uh, burgeoning, pubescent, sort of romantic feel. There's right? no good – like, there's not no, but there's very few really good movies about, like, what it's like to be a 12-year-old in lust and not even know what that means. Right, right. And that movie is all tiny moments. Like, that yep. – 
if you describe the plot, it would sound like someone just describing, like it would just sound like a twelve year old girl describing what happened to her, right? <laughs> in, no. her la- in her in her seventh grade of Wind Rises has a lot of those lyrical passages where you just think, man, even most other international filmmakers would have sped this up a little bit. I mean, yeah. it's 126 minutes. Yeah. I mean, my wife watched a little bit with me last night and she's like, what's happening? I'm like, not a lot, but I don't really care. That's it. And, 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 and I think all anime just in the way it's animated, you know, just in the efficient way of if they're going to show a close of, of a character's face and only the mouth is going to move while right. they speak. And that's just a, that's just a, that's a business decision. Yeah. But, but what it ends up creating is an aesthetic of stillness. And I think Miyazaki does more with that stillness than anyone else. And he does it in this one particularly. And I hate talking so much about a movie that people haven't seen, but there's a couple of scenes with, I noticed with crowd sequences. There's an earthquake and a train. And I thought to myself, man, this, in most other filmmakers' hands, this would be noisier. Like, yeah. Like you see people walking around and you'd think American filmmakers would have put in chatter in the background. No chatter. Like they're silent. They're they're just background for what's happening in the front. There's no like train noises in the background. There's no like all American animation is noise, 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 noise. And he loves the stillness. And, and even in a sequence where it doesn't really make sense, there would be more noise there. Yeah. But he wants you to focus on something else. Yeah. And <laughs> and you know you know what else I've been really impressed about Miyazaki for someone who's so nostalgic for yeah. someone um, who he makes films that seem to be take place 40s, 50s, sort of Japan. Or long for that period. Um, yeah, or long for that period. He's not cranky old man. No. At all. He, no, 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 no. He has such empathy for tech, you know, for people who love technology. He's such empathy for, for children who are bratty. Like, like, but in uh, in Totoro, that little boy who's just a fucking little dick oh, yeah, yeah. to those little girls. Yeah. Like, he's not asshole character he's little boy right. who does what little boys do which exactly. is when he likes a girl he's mean to them right <laughs> like that's a, that's great right he's there's not there's no bully in that movie that he's you know there's there's rarely out and out villains um the empathy i mean even i'm not a huge fan of Howl's moving castle but the witch of the waste the way that she sort of right gets treated uh in the second half of the film is incredible i love that about yeah I love that about that movie and that Sophie, um, the main character in that movie is so it's defined by her kindness and her, right. and her virtue. And he makes these adventure films in which characters aren't defined by being the best warrior or being the most brave, but being just the most kind. And there's a sense of passion for the filmmaking and for these, these fantasy worlds that he's created. You can tell that he loves them as much as he wants you to love them, mm-hmm. which is something else that's missing from modern American animation. It's not product. It yeah. is art. Um, Del Toro's Spanish language films have that sense. The that's uh, a good that's a good comparison. De- yeah. Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, these worlds that you can tell the creator has put every attention into detail. That they're they're fantasies and dreams of his mm-hmm. brought to life. I mean, you look at Del Toro's notebooks. I imagine Miyazaki's notebooks are similar. I never I, thought of Del Toro as being so influenced by Miyazaki, but it seems clearly, very obvious now clearly. that you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, especially his Spanish stuff, which is. Vastly superior to his English language stuff, in my right. opinion. Um, I, I agree. But Devil's Backbone has those moments of stillness in, in a horror story that wouldn't normally have those moments. Mm-hmm. And it has those things where it's using fantasy to make cultural statements mm-hmm. and societal statements. So, yeah, they're definitely partners. So Del Toro can fill the power vacuum. Yeah. Maybe he needs to go animate something. There we go. He has, to, he has to oversee some animation and he has to not do it in Hollywood. That's a good idea. Because <laughs> they've, they've sucked him up. Oh man, one of the movies I caught up on was Pacific Rim. I was blown away at how much I hated that movie. I, I'm okay with Pacific Rim. I it was Pacific Rim to me is boom, 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 pow, pow, well, pow. Well, I, I saw it on DVD. Be. Oh, wow. So... 
We don't need to get into Pacific yeah, no, Rim. No, certainly, but, but, uh, but I, I'll yeah, defend I, Pacific Rim over his other English language films. I will, I will, I don't like it as much as Hellboy 2, but I will, um, I like it more than Hellboy 2. I, but I will say that, I will say, I would definitely but agree with you that his Kronos Spanish work is pans. way superior. Way superior. Yeah. All right. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, that wraps up Miyazaki real quick. Yep. Um, what is your, uh, to, to completely flip the script, what's your, what would be your game of the year? Because um, you also write, you are also a, a yeah. game journal. I imagine you are now writing about PlayStation Four. Uh, yes, I am writing about PlayStation Four. I got so. a PlayStation Four that works. My first one did not. Oh boy! They sent, but they sent me another one. Uh, PlayStation Four. Real quickly, I wouldn't advise anyone to go get one right away. Mm-hmm. Just as I wouldn't advise anyone to get a launch product right away. Give it some time to work out its technical kinks for the launch library to get more impressive. Because the game's available on it right now. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much what I've heard yeah. throughout. It's, Especially the if uh, you want to play a better looking version of the NBA 2K and right. the oh and, Battlefield and the 4 looks ridiculous Call of Duty and Battlefields yeah. that you've already right. been playing. Yeah, Battlefield Four looks insane, almost terrifying. I started playing it, and I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> PTSD from Battlefield Four. Yeah. Um, games of the year. There's three that I love, and I'll do three, two, one. Tomb Raider. The Tomb Raider reboot was mm-hmm. fantastic. It was very fun. Um, Bioshock Infinite, I adore. It's ambitious. It's talk about world creation. I love it, but nothing touches Last of Us. The Last of Us is a masterpiece of a game. One of the best games of the PS3 generation. Awesome. So, um, cool. And then uh, while we're at it, uh, we should go ahead and talk about our top three uh, Miyazaki movies. If you can think of the top uh, three, you go first. Sure. Like uh, I think my number think one would be one. Spirited Away. My number two would be Kiki's Delivery Service, and my number three would be Castle of Cagliostro. And because as much as there's so much in all of his films that I really enjoy. I do the the more overtly fantasy and sci-fi. I just I keep me more in the distance than than those films. My number one is Spirited Away. My number two is Totoro, and my number three is Nausicaa. Awesome. All right. Well, it's been great having yeah. you on um, once again, Brian Tallarico. You can uh, uh, read Thanks, his work guys. on about.com. Uh, he writes for RogerEbert.com. HollywoodChicago.com is where a lot of my film stuff is. TV stuff is at RogerEbert.com and some film. I just interviewed Oscar Isaac for Lewin Davis, so that should be easy to find. Great. I interviewed Adam McKay for Anchorman 2. Should be easy to find. So excited to see Llewellyn Davis. It's my number two. Yeah. You don't need to get ahead on top tens, but it's my number two. Sweet. I love it. I want to hug it. I want to take it home yeah. and watch it over and over again. Oh, man. Um, and he was a great interview, so go read that interview. Awesome. Interesting dude. We talked about like Bukowski and Buster Keaton and really cool stuff. Sweet. So. And uh, and you're at, on Twitter at Brian Tallarico? Brian uh, underscore Tallarico, T-A-L-L-E-R-I-C-O. Awesome. And I am at Patrick Rapol on Twitter. You can, of course, see my uh, view my uh, few film journal uh, at uh, Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot blog spot dot or no dot wordpress dot com. Excuse me. Um, our website, Directors Club com. Please send us an email. We love to get emails. Um, it's coming up towards the end of the year. We're going to do another one of our spectacular end of the year episodes. So when you guys come up with your top 10 list for the year, uh, send it to us. We'll read them on the air um, during our episode. Uh, so, uh, directors club podcast at gmail.com. It's on Twitter. We're at DC podcast. Um, next episode is going to be Vincent Minnelli, which I'm dying, uh, to, because I, uh, dying to cover because, um, I, uh, we have not really covered a musical director yet. And that's a good one. Vincent Minnelli is one of my favorites. Yeah. And any excuse to watch, uh, meet me in St. Louis during, you don't need an excuse to watch meet me in St. Louis <laughs> during the Christmas season, but, uh. Uh, uh, any excuse to watch it twice would be great (laughs) so uh, until next time um, thank you Brian for being on anytime and uh, we'll see you next time bye
It's Patrick uh, with a little secret bonus content for all you guys who stuck around till the end. I have been watching a lot of 2013 movies and I figured it's a pretty short episode. Why not add a little bit? So I'm going to talk to you guys uh, solo about a couple movies I've been watching. Uh, Okay, Spring Breakers. Really, really, really divided on this one internally in my head i don't know where i stand on spring breakers it's odd it's compelling but it's dumb it's fucking dumb anything it thinks it has to say about the american dream or white people co-opting black culture 
or the shallowness of millennials or any of that shit. It's, it has nothing to say about any of that. But what it does have is it's really, really compelling to watch. And it's really in- interesting. Not, not in the idea. It's interesting aesthetically, <laughs> not in the ideas or in the plot. And honestly, um, you know, everyone, everyone's been sort of bending over backwards to, to congratulate James Franco over his role in uh, Spring Breakers. I honestly think the movie just takes a nosedive the second he enters. Um, I really think his character is the most boring kind of been there, done that part of that entire movie. So I'm, I wasn't, I don't like there's parts of Spring Breakers. I find very compelling. I'm very into like the, the initial robbery of the donut shop is incredible the way it's shot and everything. And, but then, yeah, it just sort of fizzles out and like, you know, I like rap music. The idea of casting Gucci Mane, that sounds good in my head, but he is actually maybe the worst actor I've ever seen in any film I've ever seen. Um, ever. I, he's worse than Tommy Wiseau. He's worse. He's worse than any, but like Gucci Mane almost sinks that movie. Um, if, uh, uh, if Harmony Corinne's script didn't already sink it before he shows up. So, uh, Spring Breakers, I like. Uh, actually, despite itself, but not so hot on. Um, Pain and Gain, I saw the new Michael Bay movie. I really thought it was really funny. It, it is my favorite Michael Bay movie. Not that I'm a huge fan of any of his movies. I'm not one of those people. Like, I, when I, I had a VHS copy of The Rock, uh, not The Rock. I had a VHS copy of Armageddon growing up. So I watched that a fair amount and whatever. That's, it's a movie. Whatever nostalgia I have for it, it's entirely based on the fact that there's a million character actors in it. Um, but it's still a bad movie. Uh, whereas Pain and Gain is actually very funny and The Rock is fucking amazing in it. Um, Pain and Gain, good stuff. Uh, it's a little too vicious and mean and mean-spirited and just weird for, for my taste. Not, not weird as in unusual, but weird as in just like, why do you have to go there? Why, why, why does everyone have to be the worst asshole? Here's what weirded me out about pain and gain. At the end, after this entire movie, the whole thesis of pain and gain is look at these dumbasses. Look at how fucking dumb they are. And look at all the fucking dumb things these fucking dumbasses do. Um, and then it ends with them fucking getting the death sentence after all the crimes they commit. Um, spoiler alert, I guess. Um, then it shows the real-life photos during the credits. It shows the real-life photos of everyone who appears in it. it like, of, of the real people that, you know, Mark Wahlberg and The Rock and, you know, uh, <laughs> Anthony Mackie. Okay, I remember his name. Anthony Mackie's. He's, he's not a great... He doesn't do a good job here, but I remember his name anyway. Anthony Mack, like, it just shows all the real people who their characters are based off of. And it's like, you can't make a wacky movie based on a true story about dumbasses who get executed and then say, waka waka. Anyway, here are the real dumbasses. Fuck them. Like, that's ghoulish. It's, I mean, the whole movie's a little mean spirited, but that was particularly ghoulish. I like Pain and Gain, though. The Rock is really amazing. 
in Pain and Gain. Uh, he's all right in Furious 6, which is a horrible movie, but he's all right in it. But Pain and Gain, he, he, it's, 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 it, as someone who has liked The Rock since the rundown, it's a revelation. Um, speaking of revelation, Two Guns. No one talks about this movie, Two Guns. It's a movie that sort of came out earlier in the year. Mark Wahlberg and Denzel Washington futzing around. Two Guns is great. Two Guns is everything I'd ever want um, out of just light entertainment. It's – God, Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg are really funny together and the uh, and the, and the script is really fast-paced and it's clever and it's really funny and the action scenes are fine. They're not, they're not anything spectacular but um, it's – OK. I guess – I'm, I'm, I'm guessing maybe part of my affection towards Two Guns is just the fact that it's nice to see Denzel Washington in something that, um, hasn't been ruined by Tony, the late Tony Scott's, uh, style and editing. Uh, I never saw Book of Eli, but I imagine Book of Eli was not as much fun as Two Guns. I love Two Guns. I, I had a couple, I, so I was raving about how much I like Two Guns on Twitter and Facebook, and I had a couple people say, oh yeah, it's alright, but then it falls apart in the third act. I don't find, I don't think so at all. I think that's great. I think it's great the whole way through. It's so much fun. Two Guns is the sleeper, sleeper hit of 2013. It's gonna be one of those things that in 2015 or 16, people are gonna write articles and they're gonna be like, Two Guns, secret masterpiece, and then, no, it's not a, fucking masterpiece but it's really really good and it's in my top 10 so far um i (laughs) watch i watch pacific rim which i mentioned briefly in this episode and it's not good it's a real i was shocked at how bad it was like every part of it is bad it's it has it, it does that you know big hollywood thing where just like okay you have a movie about giant monsters fighting giant robots. You are going to have a fair amount of CGI. Fair enough. But then it just goes and goes and goes till everything feels like CGI. Like, I don't like the movie Aliens very much. I don't like James Cameron's Aliens. But at least, like, when they film a hangar, <laughs> like in Aliens, it just is a hangar. Like, they don't need to green screen a goddamn hangar. They can just let a hangar be a hangar. Like, one of the... Um, I mean, it's not, oh boy, hold on a second. Hey, we're back. Okay. Um, technical difficulties. We're back. I don't have much else to say about Pacific Rim. Okay, the thing that makes Pacific Rim suck is not just the pervasive CGI. And the pervasive CGI is best summed up by that little countdown clock. Or, or not count – it's a count-up clock. It's time since Jaeger has elapsed. It's it's in the world. It's a physical object. It's little numbers flipping over. Number one, I don't know why they would have numbers flipping over, but whatever. Logic, not important. But what is important is it's so blatantly – CGI and not an actual object that exists in the world. It's like, oh, you couldn't have some fucking gaffers or whatever pull some fishing line and make uh, an actual number tick up or down 
on on a physical clock it's it's ridiculous it's dumb it's i mean what makes pacific rim horrible is that every single line of dialogue is the worst line of dialogue you've ever heard in any movie um which isn't to say it's the worst script of all movies ever but it is just all the things that you hate about it or at least that i hate about every movie where it's just like oh we got company oh and it's just Oh, it's all a bunch of the worst fucking cliches. It doesn't have the personality of Michael Bay's Transformers. I think that's the most damning thing you could ever say about Pacific Rim. It doesn't have the personality of goddamn motherfucking Transformers. Uh, at least the first Transformers. I didn't see the other movies, but the first Transformers at least had a little bit more personality in its, um, supporting characters. Like Charlie Day's alright. I, I mean, those are my favorite parts of the movies. The, parts of the movie with Charlie Day, but he's not particularly good. It's just a relief from all of the onslaught of cliches. So yeah, Pacific Rim gets a huge thumbs down from me. It's honestly one of the worst movies I've seen all year, and I saw movie 43. So yeah, hated it. Hated it. Um, I guess that's all I really need to share with you guys. I just thought I'd throw in a little bonus. Um, uh, congratulations for finding this, uh, for listening past all of that music and finding this delicious little nugget. Uh, okay. Goodbye, everybody. Frankie Teardrop. 20 year old Frankie. He's married, he's got a kid And he's working in a factory He's working from seven to five He's just trying to survive Well, let's hear it for Frankie ideas from last night, they really got to me. Um, this morning I woke up and everything was weird. I, I walked out into the lobby of the conference and I looked down and everybody looked like they were chess pieces. I saw Professor Schasser was standing there and he was the king and Henderson was zigzagging, going diagonals like a bishop and there was a student who was stepping forward just like a pawn, and just as he was about to hit Professor Schesser, his wife swooped in to defend him just like a queen. And I kept thinking that, uh, that a knight was going to teleport. Did you see any teleportation? No. No. Um, did you see anything where, like, if two bodies would come together, one of them would disappear? No. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. Um, good night. Good night.
800 a month will Bob be enough? I suppose. Will you move in with him or keep the apartment? Keep it if you allow me to. I've decided not to see Bob. At all? At all. How can you say that? He's gonna be fucked up enough as it is, and I don't want to fuck him up even more by playing Sunday Daddy. What were you to him, anyway? Precisely. He knows you. He's yours. He needs you. A real father, full time. Well, I thought I could be coming out from the wars, so to speak. You say it's better with him than with me. I get more out of it. Tell me. I think what you want to do to Bob is... Inhuman? So what you're doing must be human. How long is it going to last? I don't know. One week, two weeks? And how do you dispose of ideas like, like honesty and loyalty? If I could only believe that it happened cleanly at first sight. Okay. If it makes things easier. I was in his bed the first night I met him, if you have to know. What do you expect of me? Look what you're doing! No one is good or bad. But if you won't, I'm that one. And if you knew he existed in this world, I would have never had Bob with you. Thank <laughs> you. 